are very important today. Lee will receive the fullest attention with four lectures on his generalship. His three most successful infantry corps commanders, Stonewall Jackson, James Longstreet, and Jubal Early, will each be the subject of two lectures. And the other generals either will be covered in one lecture or will share a lecture with another officer. I selected the 15 generals for their importance, and in some cases as representative types. For example, Army Commanders Joseph E. Johnston and P.G.T. Beauregard offer revealing contrast to Lee. And a quartet of younger men, John B. Gordon, Robert E. Rhodes, Stephen Dodson Ramser, and Edward Porter Alexander, provide case studies of how officers with very different military backgrounds rose through the ranks to positions of considerable authority. The course breaks down into seven sections of unequal length. The first lecture sets the stage by placing Lee and his army within the larger context of the war. The next four lectures explore Lee's generalship, the last of those four examining whether Lee should be considered an old-fashioned general caught up in a modern type of mid-19th century conflict. The six lectures on Jackson, Longstreet, and Early come next, followed by a quartet on Jeb Stewart, A.P. Hill, Richard S. Ewell, and John Bell Hood. Stuart ably commanded Lee's cavalry for most of the war. Uh, neither Hill nor Ewell, who had done very well as division commanders, distinguished himself as a corps commander, and Hood left Lee's army as a superior division commander who would fail at higher levels of responsibility in Georgia and Tennessee. The next two lectures, numbers 16 and 17, break the biographical pattern. The first looks at Lee's ability to make hard decisions regarding personnel. Uh, many historians believe he couldn't make such decisions. Uh, I disagree with that. The second of these two examines the impact of combat attrition on the Army's high command. Lectures 18 through 21 shift the spotlight to the four young officers. Uh, Rhodes, a graduate of the Virginia Military Institute. Ramser, a West Pointer from the class of 1860. Gordon, a lawyer with no formal military training before the war. And Alexander, another West Point graduate who, unlike any of the other generals we're going to look at, made his principal reputation as an artillerist. Failure of different types forms a strong thread in lectures 22 and 23, the first of which covers Johnston and Beauregard, and the second, John Bankhead Magruder and George E. Pickett. The final lecture explores how post-war writings, especially those of Jubal Early, John Gordon, and others who wrote in the Lost Cause School of Interpretation, helped shape popular perceptions of Lee and several of his most famous lieutenants. Let's begin with an overview. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia occupied a central position in Confederate and Civil War history. Myriad connections linked the battlefield and the civilian sector during the conflict, and no military force on either side, no other military force, wielded greater influence on the respective home fronts than did Lee and his command. Citizens in the United States came to view Lee and his army as the principal stumbling block to restoring the Union. And Confederates invested increasingly more emotional capital in Lee and his army as their best hope for establishing the independence of their slaveholding republic. The Confederate people looked to Lee and his army much as the colonists had looked to George Washington and the Continental Army during the American Revolution. Long before the end of the war, Lee and his army, rather than Jefferson Davis and the Confederate government, had become the most important national institution in the Confederacy. The surrender of Lee's army at a time when scores of thousands of Confederates remained under arms elsewhere understandably signaled the end of the war to most observers 
north and south. Lee and his subordinate commanders had played a hugely important role in the war that renders them worthy of continuing investigation. Lee and his army occupy a central position in the history of the Confederacy and, in a broader sense, in the history of the Civil War. Civilian morale depended on, in large measure, both in the United States and in the Confederacy, on the activities of the armies in the field. Uh, civilians very eagerly followed uh, the activities of the armies. They got most of their information from newspapers. Uh, they either subscribed to them or they passed them around. Uh, newspapers, the principal source of information, but they also got a lot of information from letters written home by soldiers in the armies. And as they received this information and as they processed it, morale went up and down. Very uh, big shifts of morale in fairly short times often. There's a sense on the part.